0: Good. Well, if we've not met before, and actually there are a few people here today who I haven't met before, which is great. It's lovely to see you. My name's Owen. Uh, and I have the privilege of leading the team here at Foundation Church. And you've joined us today right in the middle of a series in the, the New Testament Gospel of Luke, uh, where we are, we're working our way through the whole of Luke's Gospel, kind of line by line, verse by verse. Uh, we're taking it as it comes we've called this series on the road with jesus because much of the book of luke follows jesus as he is is ultimately on the road to jerusalem but as he travels around from place to place town to town and village to village and as he encounters different people and brings good news of the kingdom to them as he encounters different people and brings freedom to captives brings healing to those who are sick and speaks ultimately about eternal salvation that can be found in him and in him alone and the 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 kind of joy and challenge of going through a book like the book of luke but really any book of the bible verse by verse line by line is that some weeks you get passages where you're like this is amazing celebration and other weeks you hit passages where you're like ouch this is hard and the verses we're going to look at today are, are really some of those. The verses Madeline's just read, they, they contain a stark warning for us. They also reveal something amazing to us about the, the tender heart of God, the incredible love and compassion that God has for people. Uh, and so as we look at these verses together, we're going to see like two extremes i guess held in tension one extreme being the the incredible love and compassion of god that's on display and and at the same time as that a incredibly stark warning about those who would reject jesus and and where that leads for them and jesus is very clear in these verses actually, as we'll see, as is the whole Council of Scripture, that there will be people who who spend their days believing that they're Christians, who spend their days believing that they're, that they're saved, that they're headed for eternity with God for a whole host of reasons, and actually, in fact, they aren't. And so my prayer today as we read is that Those of us who need challenging would hear this challenge, as as difficult as it might be. But that those of us who need comforting and who need to see and understand the, the great compassionate love of God that's on display in these verses as well would receive that. And so those of us who need challenging would receive that challenge. And those of us who need comfort would receive comfort. But the last thing I want is for those who actually need To hear the challenge to just be comforted. Because that would in the end do us no good. And so we're going to go through this as we often do. Just a few verses at a time. We'll read, we'll pause, we'll unpack it and apply it and then bring it all together at the end. So we're we're just going to read again from verse 22. We read, he went on his way. Through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So the context is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been continuing to perform miracles. We'll get reference again in a few verses time about the fact that he's been casting out demons, bringing freedom for people from spiritual oppression as well as physical healing. He's been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And as he goes and as he declares that the kingdom of God has come, someone in the crowd says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And the commonly held Jewish belief was that all Jews would be saved all ethnic Jews would be saved, bar a couple of real rotters who were just, that they were going to be cut off. But other than that, all the Jews were in. And that there were then a very, very, very tiny number of Gentiles who would be included in as well. And so it's quite possible that after hearing Jesus's warnings, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've read time and time again in the preceding chapters of Luke, Jesus has given warnings to the religious leaders of the day about their hypocrisy. He's given, actually, the kind of warning that we get again today about the fact that not everyone who thinks they're in will be in. It's quite possible that after hearing these warnings, the the person who's with Jesus is actually looking for a bit of comfort. He's wanting Jesus to endorse the Jewish view of the day and to, to say, Well, as you know, all of Abraham's children will be in. Perhaps to bolster their sense of national pride, that, you know, it's okay, we're God's people, we're the ones. We're the ones. The other possibility is that actually having heard all of Jesus' teaching, this person is looking around at the group who are with Jesus, travelling with him on the road, and looking around at them and basically says so jesus like it's just us then yeah like we like we're the faithful ones it's just us the ones who are with you now like we're we're okay but all those other losers who've ignored what you've had to say and haven't joined you on this journey like they're out there's just a few of us yeah it's just us which is actually just an even more narrow view than the first possibility Neither are actually correct, and we'll see how Jesus responds. But I want to just put up a flag right now, and say before you listen to that and quickly kind of distance yourself from that kind of view, and think, well, I'd I'd never think something like that, then I just want to point out the fact that actually, we need to recognize how often we can sadly make the same kind of assumptions as the guy who asked Jesus that question. See, whenever we draw the line around those who are going to be saved, around those who will be with God forever in eternity, we tend to draw it so we're the right side of the line, don't we? Generally. Like, if we draw the line of, like, who are the ones that are in and who are the ones that are out, we always draw it in such a place That we're the in ones. I don't know if you've noticed that in life. Maybe we draw the line around a particular type of church, if you're a Christian. Or maybe a conviction on a, a niche, secondary, theological issue. Tragically, throughout history, people have drawn the line on racial lines or cultural lines... People in this country have often had the kind of assumption of, well, because we're British and we're a Christian nation. So, like, we're all Christian because we're British. And so, of course, of course, we're in. More often than not, actually, we do it based on some kind of arbitrarily selected moral standard. We think, like, that's the bar, and it just happens to be the right height that we can get over it, uh, and then anyone who falls short, well, they're out. We think, well, you know, we're essentially good people because we don't do that. And, and so we are. We're, we're essentially good people. We're deserving of God's love and favour, and we'll be with him forever because we don't do that. But them, well, they do do that thing, and therefore they're out. I don't know if you recognize that kind of reasoning, whether you've ever had a conversation with someone that has centered on those kinds of thoughts or processes. I'd be quite surprised if you haven't, actually. And when we do it, we're thinking just like the guy who shouted out to Jesus. So, are, are those who are saved going to be few? Like, is it just us? You know, it's just the faithful ones, just us. And Jesus' response is so insightful to him. See, Jesus says this. We read from verse halfway through verse twenty-three. He said to them, "Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able." Jesus essentially turns the spotlight straight back on the guy who asked the question and actually on every single one of us this afternoon. And he says, look, we're not talking about everyone else. How about you? You strive to enter through the narrow gates. We live in a world where increasingly people believe that actually there are any number of ways to come to God. That's the fashionable view, isn't it? Is that an afterlife, if it does exist, God, if he or, as is increasingly a popular way of talking about, or if he or they or she exists, then actually there are any number of ways to get to him, or there, or whatever that eternal paradise might be. As long as you are essentially a, a good person, you have a good heart. As long as your motives are right, you know, then, then all paths will get you there. As long as you have something to hold on to. We think that, you know, just having positive vibes and being essentially like kind and caring will be enough. Because, you know, God wants to welcome and embrace everyone. Everyone. And so he couldn't possibly discriminate by saying there were only one way to come to him. If people followed a different path but had a good heart and tried their best, then of course he'd welcome them. But the God of the Bible, Jesus, in this verse right here, says that the gate is narrow. In John's gospel, Jesus actually speaks very plainly about himself. in Using the same kind of language, and he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Jesus says of himself, this narrow gate, this is me. Whoever comes through me will be saved. Not a gate, not a way, but the gate elsewhere, he declares of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes this exclusive claim. He says the only way to God, the only way to eternal paradise, the only way to be in the perfect presence of God for all eternity is through Jesus. Jesus. So what does it mean to enter through the narrow gate? And why does Jesus say that we should strive to enter through the narrow gate? Why is it a struggle to strive to enter through the narrow gate? We have to strive to do it because it goes against our culture, which says it's arrogant to suggest that there is only one way. And so we have to stand against that, pluralistic view that says all roads will get you there and that's uncomfortable. And it also goes against our pride because it says you can't get yourself there. You can't be good enough. You can't live up to some kind of moral standard. You cannot get yourself there. The only way is to come to Jesus and to find forgiveness in him, to trust in his work at the cross on your behalf. And that means actually dealing with our pride, where we want to believe that we can be good enough, that we can do it, that we can come to God on our merit. And actually, we need to strive to enter through the narrow gate, which means humbly acknowledging that we've fallen short, that we're sinners in need of a saviour, that we need forgiveness. It does away with any nonsense pretension that we could be good enough on our own merit to earn our way to God. It doesn't matter where you want to draw the line, so that you're conveniently the right side of it. It doesn't matter actually which side you're standing on of the line that someone has arbitrarily chosen to draw The only thing that counts is humbly accepting that you need a saviour. And trusting Christ to save you It's only by grace. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. There is no other way. There is no other way. And Jesus, having said that, carries on to give an illustration of, about the importance of entering through the narrow gate and not trying to get in by any other means. We read from verse 25, he says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. So that's that's a sobering sentence. Jesus here basically says, there will be a time when the door is shut, when it's too late. Whether that's through death, or because Christ returns at the end of time, there will be a time when the door is shut. He says this, The master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from, depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Bear in mind when we read those verses who Jesus is with at that point in time and who he's speaking those words to. He, he is literally with them. okay, And he uses this illustration that says you'll be shut out and you'll say but we ate with you and drank with you and you taught in our streets this is a strong strong warning to these people he is literally with them he has literally been eating and drinking with them in those days as this person says to him is it just a few of us is it just us jesus He's been teaching in their streets, and now he unambiguously says, you've made the assumption that you're going to be saved, but you're not. You've made the assumption that based on your Jewish heritage, that you're going to be saved, and, and you're not. The door will be closed, and you'll be on the outside, unless you enter by the narrow gate, unless you come and find forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus. Their appeal, but but we we've been around you, like we've heard you teaching. We've we've it it was a an intimate fellowship thing to eat together. It's such an important cultural thing to recline at table and eat together in terms of relationship culturally. And they're saying we've we've been with you, we've eaten with you, we've drunk with you, we're with you, and Jesus this damning response like, I i don't know you or where you've come from jesus gives a very similar warning in matthew 7 he says this in matthew seven twenty one to 23 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people who Jesus was with in Luke 13 and who he was speaking to in Matthew 7, These people were thoroughly convinced that they're in. They'd done the right things. If you put it in a modern context, they were at the right meetings. They said the right words. They raised their hands and sang in worship. Maybe they even led and taught and ministered. It says in Matthew 7, we we did all of this in your name. All these ministry things. We, We cast out demons. We prophesied in your name. We did these incredible works in your name. But Jesus is clear. It's not just about being in the right meetings. It's not about attending church. It's not about going through the motions of religious activity. It's not about being around what God is doing. It's about knowing him. Just being in church week in, week out. It's about knowing him. Tragically, some people can attend church their whole life. They can sit in Sunday services week after week after week. Even serve. Lead worship. Preach, maybe. Contribute. They could look to others on the surface like the model Christian. But it's all on the surface. They've never humbled themselves to enter through the narrow gate. And so it's a waste of time. And so I guess I, I I need to ask you. I need you to consider do you know him? Have have you entered through the narrow gate? Are you saved? The good news is you don't actually have to guess. Okay? So I I think you can ask that question, and people become paralyzed with a kind of like, oh no, like maybe I'm not, like I thought I was, and and maybe I'm not, and what if I'm not? And oh no. I, I think there are objective evidences in the life of a Christian. Someone who has humbled themselves and come through the narrow gate and said, Jesus, you are Lord. I want to live for you and your glory. Would you fill me with your spirit and enable me to live for you? There are objected evidences in the life of a believer. It's why Jesus tells us that we'll know people by their fruits, by the way their life is lived. See, the truth is is that if you're a Christian, if you believe and apply the gospel to your life, then it it makes a material difference. Those who have entered through the narrow gate, those who have repented and found forgiveness in the person and work of Jesus, who are no longer stuck in their pride, trying to justify themselves, but instead have received Christ's righteousness as a free gift of God, they do all they can to please their Heavenly Father. They're motivated by a by a heart's desire, not not for their own selfish pleasure or gain, but to please their heavenly Father. It's the the natural impulse of someone who's entered through the narrow gate. It's a deep-seated desire to please God. It doesn't mean Christians will never sin or never struggle with sin, right? Don't hear what I'm not saying. But there's a genuine desire to please Him. Those who've truly experienced the love of God respond in love for God. I guess I want to ask do you love Him? Because if you know Him, you love Him. (laughs) Those who've found forgiveness from their sins, they hate sin, they might stumble and fall and need forgiveness. In fact, they will. (laughs) Until the day you die, if you're a Christian, you're still going to mess up and you're still going to need forgiveness. But I tell you what, those who've come through the narrow gate, they hate sin. It grieves them when they realize that they've sinned. And so they come repentant to find forgiveness. They hate sin just as their father in heaven hates sin. In essence, those who've entered through the narrow gate love what God loves and they hate what God hates. They call good what God calls good and evil what God calls evil. And when they become aware of an area in their lives where they've fallen short, they're quick to ask for forgiveness and find it. (laughs) Always find it. Yeah, we read, don't we, that he is faithful and just, that when we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we're not casual about sin. If you're a Christian, if you've entered through the narrow gate, you're not going to be like, nah, never mind. I'll try again tomorrow. You're not going to be casual about sin. Those who are regenerate will do all they can to avoid sin. And when they become aware of it in their lives, they'll be quick to repent and confess and ask God to help them to live holy lives for his glory. But but these are the warnings, I guess. If you're complacent in your sin, if you're happy to go on sinning, then I think the Bible is pretty clear, actually, that you're probably not saved. And I could probably take the probably out of that sentence. Hebrews ten twenty six says that if we go on sinning deliberately after the knowledge of the truth, so after hearing the gospel and proclaiming that we've believed it, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. It's an interesting verse, right? I don't think it means that you can lose your salvation. I think what it means is that if you go on sinning deliberately after you've come to faith in Jesus, the truth is that you never really came to faith in Jesus. You're not actually saved. This isn't about earning salvation, okay? It's not about having a moral bar that you have to get over in order to be saved. But what I'm saying and what I think consistently the Bible teaches is that actually those who are saved (laughs) will do all they can to live in such a way as to please God and bring glory to him. It's important to remember that that we're going to battle with sin our whole lives. Okay, I don't want you to sit today feeling like, oh, but I wrestle with that. Just I struggle with that sin and begin to feel condemned and begin to feel like, oh, well, I mustn't be a Christian then. That's not true. The problem is, is when you're not in the fight, when you don't care about it, when you're not trying to, when you're not actually aware of it and asking God to forgive you and empower you by His Spirit to live for him when you're no longer in the fight when you don't care when you're complacent about it when it doesn't bother you that you are sinning then there's a problem we'll always battle with sin until the day we die or Christ takes us home yeah but saved people are repentant people and repentant people are saved people And right now, the door isn't closed. There will be a day when it is, but it isn't yet. There's an opportunity to enter through the gate, to come to Christ and ask him for forgiveness, to put your trust in him to save you. There will be a day when it's too late, though. I want us to heed the warning that's in this passage don't make the mistake of being on the outside when that day comes, banging on the door, saying, "Please, let us in. I went to church my whole life. Let me in." I said, I don't know you." But I prophesied, I don't know you. Don't make that mistake. Let's read on from verse 29. People will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Perhaps the biggest blow that Jesus delivers in this passage in response to his questioner is that actually his questioner led with the assumption that they were the ones who were in. That that like him and his crew, were the ones that were in. He led with that assumption. And now Jesus says, not only will some of you not be there, but you're going to be really surprised at the people who are, because there's going to be a whole load of people who you didn't expect to be there who will be. Jesus' reference to the east and west and north and south, like the ends of the earth, Is essentially Jesus saying, "There's going to be loads of Gentiles there. Loads of non-Jews are going to be there in the kingdom. Many of them will be saved, and that's great news for us. Most of whom are not ethnic Jews. I I would guess a hundred percent of us in this tent. (laughs) That's good news for us." Christ didn't just come for the Jews. He came for all who would trust in him. The invite is broad. The gate is narrow, but the invite is expansive. It's not just those inside the little line that you might like to draw. The invite is to the ends of the earth. Everyone, everyone who struggles with anything can come. anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It's good news, isn't it? But but we need to hear the caution that's also here too, that's implicit in these words, is that don't assume you know who is and who isn't. There are too many, like the Jews, who Jesus was addressing here, who think they are able to assume that other people... From a different background or a different church tradition won't be there but jesus wants us to be very clear about this it isn't ethnicity or culture it isn't about social standing or political allegiance however strongly you might disagree on some of those things there is no right type of person who will be there in the kingdom of god this is the great invite of god it's for everyone to the ends of the earth it's the most inclusive message of all time and yet at the same time it's the most exclusive message of all time because the gate is narrow there is only one way everyone is invited to come but the only way is through the narrow gate it's all about how you respond to christ that's quite tough teaching some of us like, hear it and we're like, yes, it's all about Christ and I'm all in. Come on. And others are like, oh, that's kind of difficult. And the people who Jesus first delivered this to were in the camp of, that's kind of difficult. Because he just said very plainly to them, you think you're in and a whole bunch of you won't be and a whole load of the people who you look down on, who you call dogs, who you despise, who you harbour hatred in your hearts towards, they're going to be there. And so we read from verse 31, at that very hour some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, get away from here, Herod wants to kill you. Now it's it's possible, possible, that the Pharisees were genuinely trying to be helpful to Jesus. But unlikely, <laughs> okay? I think what's far more likely to be happening here, given the way Jesus has been speaking and the way the Pharisees have been taking a hammering from Jesus over their legalistic views, is that they've just heard, a whole, you're not going to be there, and a whole bunch of the people that you look down your noses at are going to be, and they're like, ah. Oh, we we need to get him out of here quick. What are we gonna do? <laughs> so he's kind of like, yeah, we heard that Jesus. Uh, it's probably time you should go now, because Herod wants to kill you. I mean, you you just need to <laughs> get out. Come on, quick! Herod's gonna get you. Like we don't like what you have to say, Jesus. You should probably go now. Nevertheless. It is actually a credible threat. We've already read in Luke's Gospel that Herod is not very happy with what's going on. We've actually also already read uh, that Herod has arrested and imprisoned and then beheaded Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who was proclaiming the kingdom and the fact that Jesus was coming. Herod probably was well and truly after Jesus. And what we need to know culturally it's probably not too different today although we like to think it's all a whole lot more sanitized if a king we have a king in the same way in this country our queen doesn't have quite this authority but then if the king wanted you dead it's game over right you are not living if the king wants you dead you're dead that's all there is to it one way or another he is going to get you and you are going to die And Jesus is totally unfazed by that threat. And we read this from verse 32. He said to them, go and tell that fox. You just think, like, what? (laughs) Like, (laughs) go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus knows what he's come to do. Jesus is clear about his mission. And he's like, hey, do you know what? Nothing and no one, not even Herod, can stand in my way or prevent me from finishing the course which is set out before me, from accomplishing that which I came to do. I'm going to keep going until I've done what I came to do. Guys, there is amazing comfort in these verses for us today. Jesus hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing and no one. No political power, no human authority. No one and nothing. No pandemic, nothing can get in the way and stop Jesus, can stop God from accomplishing what he sets out to accomplish. He will build his church. He is building his church. He will prepare his bride and make her ready for when he returns for his people. Nothing and no one can stop him. His purposes will be accomplished. And so having been clear about the narrow gate, having given the warning that security and surety of salvation is not found in religious experience or activity, it's not found in moral piety or ethnic heritage or anything other than Christ and Christ alone, having made it clear that nothing and no one can stop him from doing what he is going to do, Jesus then goes on to reveal the heart of God for people. He goes on to reveal something of the heart of God for those who currently are shut out, for those who currently have their backs turned, for those who currently are ignoring him. And we read from verse 34, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Having just warned them severely, he now laments over Jerusalem. We read this, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not. Behold your house is forsaken. And I tell you you will not see me until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The the warning continues and we're going to get there in a second. But even in giving this final warning, the heart of Christ comes out. He laments the fact that they've repeatedly rejected God's ways. He says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. This picture that throughout the Old Testament, God has continually sent people to his people. He sent the prophets to point them back to him, to show them his heart for them. He sent people to to bring them back to him. And now Christ is there himself. And time and time and time again, they've failed to heed his warnings. Time and time again, they've rejected his words. And yet in spite of all their hard-hearted rejection, Jesus reveals this tender-hearted love for them, this compassion. It's how often I, would I have gathered ye, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. His longing to gather them, to, to provide shelter and security for them, to bring salvation to them, to draw them to himself, and yet they would not come. It's so important for us to see this. Jesus shows this compassion and longing for people. And that hasn't changed, right? We read in Scripture that God desires that all would be saved. His heart is for you. And maybe you're far off today. I don't know where all of you are at. right? This, this passage makes that abundantly clear. You could look like the model Christian. You could be here week in, week out, doing and saying all the right things, yet you haven't actually entered through the narrow gate. I don't know. I've no way of knowing, ultimately. This is Jesus' heart for you. He longs to draw you close, to pour out love and compassion on you, to protect you and provide for you and shelter you. But even as he shows love and compassion and longing to draw people to himself, he doesn't lower the bar. We've got to notice that. He doesn't widen the gate. He doesn't change the the boundaries. He doesn't compromise. There's still only one way. (laughs) The gate is still narrow. (laughs) There will be those who reject. And it breaks his heart. But he laments, how often would I have gathered you to myself, but you will not. Jesus is longing that you would come to him today and find forgiveness. We've got to catch something of this as Christians, this heart of God for people who are far off. Far too many of us as Christians are far too quick to judge and far too cold and callous about people's eternal condition we need to learn to love deeply as god loves to love sincerely passionately longing that they might be saved longing that they might come and find hope and salvation and freedom in jesus but at the same time we hold that intention just as jesus does with the fact that the gate is narrow we can't compromise on truth with people We can't fudge it. We can't pretend that that the gate isn't narrow. We can't pretend that it's wide when it's not. We can't pretend that there's any other way other than repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone. And sadly, I think the church has too often missed this on two extremes. See, either the church falls into a kind of self-righteous judgmentalism. You know, we're all right because we're not sinners like them. We we go back to being like the guy at the start, so it's just us then, Jesus, yeah? Like, forget those losers out there, it's just us. We're okay. Or we go the other way. And we compromise on truth and we compromise on morality and we excuse sin and we belittle and make excuses and we slip into permissiveness. Because we don't like being labelled by people as fundamentalists or narrow. And so we try and find ways of like opening the gate up. And well, but they're good intentioned. And so God will probably just gloss over their sin. It's okay. And Jesus gives no space for either of those. What we have here is compassion without compromise. The gate is narrow, but the appeal is broad. It's for all who are far off. We're going to share communion together in just a moment. Joe's going to come and lead us in, in one more song, and then we'll take communion. But as we sing this final song, I want you to consider how this applies to you today. And My guess is that we, there'll be different ones of us in different places. Maybe for some, you know that actually you've been quite quick to draw that line. <laughs> and it's not where Jesus draws it. And there are people, whole groups of people who you've ruled out. Who You're like, ah, there's no way they could come. So you haven't even tried to share. I encourage you, if you've slipped into that kind of judgmentalism, if you're like the guy at the start of these verses who's like, yeah, so it's just us, Jesus, yeah? It's just a few of us, that's cool. At least we're not like those sinners out there. If that's you, then I want to challenge you. I don't think you've understood the heart of God at all. When you ask him as we sing this song, Lord, would you would you help me to love as you've loved me? Would you help me to see people as you see them? Would you help me to be quick to give an account for the hope that I have in you with them? Maybe some of you today have, have, you're also a bit like that first guy and you've, you have presumed that you're in. You presume that you're saved. You presume that you're going to be there reclining at table in the kingdom of God with Jesus. Based on something other than the finished work of Christ. You've begun to think that it's got something to do with your moral performance or your religious exertions. As we sing this song, I want to encourage you to come, to come to him again, to humble yourself and recognize that you need to strive to enter through the narrow gate, that it's not based on your works, it's not based on your moral performance, it's based on the finished work of Jesus and Jesus alone. And I guess I want you to consider, is there evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Is, is, is there evidence of your salvation? Do you love him? Do you know him? Do you hate what he hates and, and love what he loves? You need to know. I don't want any of you to be stood on the outside of that door when it's closed saying, but but I was, I was there at church. I ate with you. I drank with you. You taught in our streets. I don't want you to be amongst that number. It's serious. I want you to soberly consider. Where do you stand? Joe, why don't you come and lead us?